Welcome to the Maternity and Midwifery Hour, brought to you once a week by the Maternity and Midwifery Forum. This podcast is supported by Matflix, video streaming from maternity experts. All your CPD needs made easy. If you need to get your revalidation done or have a student project to complete, Matflix is the one-stop shop. So this is the sixth episode. My name's Sue MacDonald and I'm the curator for this hour, the Maternity and Midwifery Hour, and also the Maternity and Midwifery Festivals, one of which is coming up in November. Um, and those of you who follow these hours will know that this hour came by from COVID-19. Um, because when that happened and people were then very much more isolated than they are becoming now. We wanted to provide some links to midwives, to student midwives, to people who want to become student midwives, to really make sure they had some sort of links, and more importantly, lots of up-to-date information in kind of manageable and digestible chunks rather than long um, seminars. So they're very much accessible. If you're watching now and you miss anything, don't panic because you can access these after the, the hour and the, all of the, the sessions that we have are recorded so you can access them through Matflix, which is a fantastic resource. If you're doing an assignment or if you're doing your revalidation for your midwives there, there's lots and lots of information that you can use and you can use for your revalidation. Fantastic. So just go to Matflix. I'm Delighted this evening to be joined by Sophie Russell and Michelle Lynch. Um, and we're going to be talking about maternity services and firstly care for re refugee women with a particular focus on women from Afghanistan, but also talking about baby loss awareness week with Michelle. But we're going to start, as we always do, by putting our speakers on the spot, as we like to do, and asking them for a little moment of the week to share. So shall I start with Michelle? A little moment of the week. Only one, Michelle. Okay, I'll, I'll behave. So um, yesterday evening, I was accepted finally for the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson programme through the NHS Leadership Academy. So I'll be doing my master's over the next two years. Ooh. Wow, that's going to be quite a big moment, I think. Fantastic, yeah. Michelle. How fantastic. Congratulations. Indeed. Wow. Okay. How about Sophie? Um, mine's not anything as, um, as exciting as Michelle's, but um, I started my Christmas shopping last week. I know, I know, I know. And um, I bought some advent calendars. And so essentially, I couldn't carry everything from my car. So the two advent calendars um, remained in my car. And during the week, I got stuck in traffic with my uh, two-year-old son um from nursery and he was screaming and screaming and screaming and I had to open up I had nothing else in the car and I had to open up the advent calendars anyway so I left the advent calendar on the the passenger seat of the car and then the next morning got into the car drove off and I got a text message from my neighbor saying um you started Christmas early by opening up your advent calendar and I was so embarrassed and I usually do open up my um you know sometimes I sort of sneak a day in early but um October was a, a record for me <laughs> Well, thank goodness you have the chocolate as an emergency. My goodness. I know. 
yeah expensive way well yeah it's an expensive source of chocolates rather a treat though little yeah. little bon mouches wonderful thank you very much to sophie and michelle for sharing those moments we will come back to them and um, and i want to just before we start the session just send some good wishes to anyone who's suffering well actually now from covid from long covid but also from the, there's a rather nasty cold going around as well and for a lot of us we haven't and we were talking about this a little bit earlier we haven't really had as many things like colds because of all the masks and because of the hand washing we've actually been protecting ourselves and of course now there's a few nasty bugs going around so take care of yourselves make sure you've got your hot lemon your honey and all those sort of things at home to look after yourself for those of you who with covid and long covid we send our best wishes you take care and hope you get well soon um, and we like to really pay tribute as we always do but i think it's important to do so to our colleagues in the nhs all in, particularly in the maternity services because that's our our place but also the rest of the nhs because everywhere's suffering they're having to work top grade work at the moment is really hard when they're short staff when people are sick and it's a lot of stress and there are also people maybe not treating our NHS staff as they should do and I think that's quite difficult to cope with after we had all the clapping and the you know nice positive stuff last year things have turned not so well um, this year so I think we need to remember to say a big thank you all the way around because you're still fantastic, all of you who are in, working in the NHS. And also, big thank you to those of you doing the vaccinating and the boosting and all of that because that's going on at, at, at quite a tilt too. Fantastic. Okay, I usually do a little bit of the news. There's quite. I'm not going to go into fuel shortages or... Um, tankers or uh, things that are off the coast queuing up or any of that i'm not getting into that today we'll talk about there's a new survey called babies born better and this is calling for mums who've had babies within the last three years to really do this little survey and it's available on facebook and on twitter for those of you who are media uh, social media savvy do link your mums up or if you're one of those mums have a look and see if you want to put your information in there. Big news this, this week was the need for pregnant women, especially to access COVID-19 vaccination. And there's a really good um, infographic from Embrace, which is the key information on COVID-19 in pregnancy, which I've put on the resources page, which is available on online now and it's got the whole I did the whole picture because it's a really good picture and it makes it very clear how important it is to make sure we're telling women what they need to know about vaccination because it really will make life safer for them and their families so please have a look at that um, and I know that there's many midwives who've really taken this on board over the last few weeks and they're uh, providing drop-in clinics and additional information sessions for women to make sure that women and their families are getting the information they need to feel safe about having the vaccination for that. Um, there's also, um, right, some of, some of you, your staff will have been having booster vaccinations. So keep on with that, that's great. Don't forget your flu vaccine as well. 
I'm, I'm seem to be the vaccine queen tonight. Um, there's also a, da, 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 a book launch from the Maternal Journal. That's Laura Godfrey Isaacs, who will be known by many of you, who's got a book coming out in October, end of October, around the journal. Also remind you, it's still Black History Month. There's a lot of activities, a lot of information going around on social media, but also I've noticed on ordinary media, which is really interesting to really round up our knowledge about all of the people we work with and all the people in the past that we don't know a lot about. And this week, just to remind you, from the 9th to the 15th is Baby Loss Awareness Week, which we dealing with a little bit later so do check out the resources page for updated resources and references from tonight's uh, session that'd be hopefully really really useful we've got a, a kind of um i won't say mixed bag but we've got two quite different sessions and i looking at it i wanted to sort of really provide a kind of almost like this is like normal life for midwives we have very complex work. We work with women with complex lives and we're dealing with complex societal issues. So that's why we've got things that maybe don't look as though they're quite linked together because sometimes our, our content links very closely together, but they do and you will see how they do. And tonight in our first session, we're going to look at the care and services for refugee women and families with a special focus on Afghanistan and Afghanistan women or women from Afghanistan. Um, and I had a, I noticed we had a, 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 some feedback already and I'm looking over here at my other screen. Those of you who are regular viewers will know this. I have to look at the other screen um, from uh, Hawa Hamza. Hi, Hawa, who is tuning in tonight. So she's there. And she's working to, with a continuity midwife to support the Afghan women in Northampton. Um, and she makes a comment, I've made, I found it so rewarding to do the little I can. It has made me so very aware of how fortunate I am. We live in a very privileged lives and often feel, feel very entitled. Yet these women are content with so little and so very grateful for a second chance alive. I think we have to remind that at the back of our minds and to, to really give us lots more information about what's happening in this part of the world. Um, I'm delighted to introduce Sophie Russell. She's one of the consultant midwives at Lewisham and Greenwich Trust. She's based on the Queen Elizabeth site. And as well as being a consultant midwife since 2017, she's also an associate director for quality and safety for the division. So she's a fairly busy person. Sophie has a strong focus on patient safety and human rights and completed her master's in medical law and ethics in 2012 at King's College. Her thesis was on the competing ethical and legal demands between mother and her unborn baby. She's also a national reviewer for and chapter author on the Embrace uh, programme. And she's been advocating for reducing health inequalities for migrant and refugee women for several years now. And she's working in this whole area at the moment. And I'm really delighted she can be with us this evening. So welcome, Sophie. The screen is all yours. Thank you so much. Um, just give me a second to share. Um, 
Thank you so much, Sue, for inviting me um, this evening to talk at uh, Maternity and Midwifery Hour. And I'm absolutely delighted when Sue contacted me to say, would I come and talk about the care of migrant and refugee women? Because this is something that's really close to my heart. And, and I'm not going to go through all of the Embrace statistics, because I think we, we're all quite familiar now that if you're from an ethnic minority background, you are statistically more likely to have a stillbirth, neonatal death and maternal death. And they're, they're very complex reasons as to why that, that happens, but hopefully by the end of this presentation this evening, it will just give you a bit more insight as to why that happens and, and what as midwives we are advocates for women, what we can do to help uh, re reduce that. So this presentation is gonna be a bit of a, a mismatch between um, my care that I've been given for um, women that have um, fled from Afghanistan and also uh, how we can just generally re reduce health inequalities for, for migrant women. So before I start, um, I just wanted to sort of say that this is my reflections on Tulip Team. And for those of my colleagues that are watching, they know that I'm very, um, I'm very passionate about my Tulip Team and I get very um, sort of mother hen about them. Um, and the reason we called um, the women from Afghanistan Tulip Team, I didn't like um, when people are handing over, oh, this is a lady from Afghanistan or she's an Afghanistan refugee. I felt that it was um, a little bit demoralizing, not quite personal. And so we sort of, I came together with my colleagues and I said, what, what team could we call the women from Afghanistan? And uh, I didn't come up with this name, so I can't take uh, credit for it. It was one of my colleagues, Rebecca Taylor um, and, and Dega. And they said, um, tulip is the national flower of Afghanistan. And I lived in Amsterdam for a little while and I always associate tulips with Amsterdam, but actually tulip is the national flower of, of Afghanistan and it means hope and love. And I just thought that after everything that the refugees have been through, so nice to call them um, tulip team. So I just wanted to sort of um, start off with that. So before I go into how I got involved and, and how we provided care, I just wanted to talk through a couple of things about unconscious bias. So, these are sort of um, snapshots of um, headlines that I've, I've screenshotted for you here. And I really dislike the term illegal immigrant. And you'll see that quite a lot in the news, illegal immigrants, um, people smugglers, uh, trafficking illegal immigrants. And the reason I don't like it is because as you see in this picture up in the right hand corner, and this was a, a protester in Mexico, that no human being is illegal. And talking about somebody in the terms, if you see somebody saying, oh, this is an illegal immigrant, it already sort of sets those unconscious biases within you that this person's a criminal, they've done something wrong. Now this um, gentleman here, Eli Weasel, he was a Holocaust survivor and he fled, um, he, fled he, was a, uh, he was a Jew and he fled Palestine and he's a Nobel uh, Peace Prize winner and he was the first person that said, um, you know, no human being is illegal. <clears throat> and I've just got his, his quote here. And this sort of term illegal immigrant was really used. It, it, this is where it came from in World War II. And what he said was, um, no human being is illegal. Humans can be beautiful, more beautiful, fat or skinny, but not illegal. It is factually incorrect and dehumanizing to call somebody illegal. Um, it only serves to perpetuate the idea that migrants are criminals. So I just thought that that was, um, you know, really quite 
quite powerful and he did a lot for the the rights of um, migrants so I just put his photo up there. So thinking about unconscious bias now when we think about the sort of the, the disparities in outcomes for migrant women it's really complex as to to why there are disparities in um, outcomes stillbirths neonatal deaths preterm births but one of the things that we um, often see when we're sort of reviewing adverse outcomes is unconscious bias and they're really difficult to pick up but I just want you to think about how your unconscious bias might play in to when you're um, caring, caring for anybody. Um, now, what I would say is that it's unconscious. So we're not, consciously, um, we're not consciously doing this. And your brain is so clever. Your brain is doing 101 things at any one time. Even when you go and open the door, all of the signals that have gone through your brain to open that door. And to do that, your brain has to be really quick and adaptable. And usually your brain does that from memory and it does that because it's, it's doing it from memory of what we think we know um, and not necessarily what we know. Um, and we've just got a, a sort of a, a slide here of different infographics of um, how unconscious bias does, does, impact your, does impact your care. So you can have affinity bias, so preference for people that are, are like yourself. Um, you know, we, we make assumptions. And, and I'll just come on to... Um, a bit later on in the presentation of, of how I made an assumption unconsciously and, and it gives a good example of how we can sort of navigate that. So I just wanted to say that before I start. So um, thinking about women who have come from Afghanistan, um, what I would say is uh, one in four uh, migrant refugee women are women of um, survivors of sexual assault and sexual violence. And I think as midwives, it's really important that we're really mindful of that. Obviously, we're often doing really intimate examinations. We're, talk we're taking intimate history taking. And often women, um, they don't disclose this or they don't disclose it immediately. Again, refugee women are often at high risk of exploitation. So some women, if you class them as, I don't like the term illegal immigrants, just so undocumented migrants, these women often aren't um, entitled to free NHS care, which puts them again at risk of, of sexual exploitation. So as midwives, we really do have to be to be mindful and, and, and sensitive to these issues, which do present themselves more in the, in the migrant population. So um, just a little bit about um, the Afghanistan refugees, Tulip team. Um, and I'm sure you'll probably all know that um, Obviously, there was a, a massive sort of uh, relocation um, program just 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 going on recently, and and we have accepted fifteen thousand refugees uh, between the fifteenth and thirty first of August, um, and they were sort of categorised into um, one to four. So most of the migrant women who have come over in the initial period are um, in the high risk and immediate threat category. So this means that women are going to be extremely frightened. They're going to be very fearful uh, for their families. And when I was doing the antenatal clinic for these women, nearly every single woman through the interpreter said that they were really scared for their family. Um, and and they, you could see that they actually weren't really concentrating on their own health because they were so preoccupied and worried about their, their, their families back home. So just something to, to think about when you're looking after migrant women. 
So how did I get involved? So um, <clears throat> uh, just as a, as a little bit of um, background, so I work um, very closely to a quarantine hotel and we had had a sort of a, a, a few women go into the quarantine hotel and I'd sort of received uh, really good links with the GP practice manager that was overseeing health, uh, health in the quarantine hotel. And um, she called me um, really late one evening, about 10 o'clock in the evening on the 24th of August. And I thought this is a bit of an unusual call. And um, she called me to say that they had just had um, 700 arrivals into the hotel all um, from Afghanistan and several of them were pregnant, uh, many in various stages of pregnancy. Um, they were all exhausted because they had been traveling for days and um, we sort of had this sort of really quick meeting at 10 o'clock that night to sort of say, okay, how are we going to triage um, this many people um, often not speaking English, might not have had um, much maternity care. So um, overnight, with lots of um, conversations with um, my obstetric colleagues, we put in this um, process of emergency triage. So we said that what we're going to do was go in the next morning and do an, a sort of a, an initial assessment. So, so with the refugees arriving in the hotel, they were asking them, what medical conditions have you got? Are you pregnant? And then the ones that were pregnant, they were sort of booking them in for us to see them the next morning. And what we said was we we're going to do a sort of initial assessment. Um, if they were bleeding or pain or reduced fetal movement, then obviously we'd need to sort of transfer them to hospital. Um, if they were in the third trimester of pregnancy or they had sort of other known sort of medical complexities, diabetes, high blood pressure, and we did come across that and they didn't they didn't have um, medication with them because they'd sort of fled in such a hurry, then those women we would refer as well. Um, if they were early on in the pregnancy, then we would um, see where they were going and sort of get their um, midwifery booking arranged. Now, preparation, what I would say is absolutely nothing prepared me for what happened for when I went into um, the clinic the next morning. And what I would say is I was brought to tears um, about three times during the clinic. And when we actually did the clinic the next morning, and, and you might remember on the news, this was when the bomb went off at the airport and it actually went off in the middle of my clinic. And obviously women were getting notifications and were so worried about their family. And the, the, the level of kindness that I saw from, from the, the people inside the hotel that was, were trying to help the refugees, but also from the women themselves. So I saw one lady, and she had a bangle on her hand. And these women were coming with no shoes. A lady even asked me if I had a hairbrush on me. If I had a hairbrush, I would have absolutely given it to her. And so then I saw her, checked her over and, and, and everything was fine. And afterwards she tried to give me her bangle. And I was just brought to tears that this lady had, she was just had the clothes that she was wearing, had left everything behind. And the one thing that she did have, she tried to give it to me. And um, I was very insistent and the interpreter was telling me, you know, it's really disrespectful not to not to take her bangle. You know, this is sort of what the, what they they do. And I was really adamant. I was like, I really can't take it. I said, because I'm just going to cry um, all the way back to the hospital if I if I take it. Um, but so I'm just saying that nothing, nothing could absolutely um, prepare me. But I think going into this situation, what we did do um, was sort of the best preparation we, we could do. Um, we downloaded lots of leaflets um, in Pashto. Um, 
Now, what I hadn't appreciated, and I thought I was being really clever by um, getting loads of leaflets on reduced fetal movement, bleeding, what maternity care in the UK in their sort of um, dialect, but about 50% of the women I saw didn't um, read or write. And I hadn't appreciated that uh, when I went in. So I think never go in with your, you know, we all the say, or make sure you get uh, literature in their own language. And I think we take it for granted often that, um, that, that women are fortunate enough to, to, to read and write. And obviously the women that we were seeing um, when they had the regime in, in Afghanistan back sort of 20, 25 years ago, women um, weren't allowed to go to school. And that's, that's why um, women couldn't, couldn't, couldn't read or write. Um, the other thing we, we thought about um, before we went into the clinic was about vaccination for these women. So um, things like polio and rubella. So we know that um, polio and rubella is high in the Afghanistan population because they don't have a, um, a good um, child vaccination program. So we were thinking when we we're thinking about booking bloods as well, um, adding in rubella and obviously that's not part of the national screening program in the UK that was removed a few years ago now. Um, but we did add that in um, for the women that we we booked um, in Tulip team. So <clears throat> when we went in and did the clinic, um, so we sort of had an initial triage pro forma that we went through and we worked alongside um, a local GP. And it was it was um, absolutely great to work along with the local GP because women had um, sort of sort of very sort of common minor elements that the GP could um, prescribe, prescribe things for. And there was one lady there who um, had thrush and she reported being in the same clothes for the last four days because she'd been mm -hmm. stood up at the airport. So there was some, there were some really sort of um, sad stories. And uh, as I say, I, I did have to um, sort of stop myself crying um, a couple of times. So of the 16 women that we triaged that morning, we referred um, three to hospital under the urgent pathway. And one was because of their late gestation. One was due to the, her medical history. So she was um, hypertensive and, and didn't have any medication with her. And then a third lady um, had had vaginal bleeding. Um, so the, the first two ladies delivered within a week and they both had baby boys, healthy baby boys, and they were fine. And um, the, the third lady that had the uh, bleeding had cervical assessment uh, and prophylactic anti-D. Interestingly, when we referred these ladies to hospital, all three ladies self-discharged. Now, what I would say is think about why these ladies are, are self-discharging. It's not because they don't want care. There's many other factors going on. They're scared about what's going to, they've got other children. They're very frightened. They don't want to be separated from their children children staying in the quarantine hotel, they're staying in hospital. And obviously we've got all of these new COVID regulations now. And obviously they were in a quarantine hotel, so the children can't leave. So it's got that logistical um, government rules of, you know, you're only allowed to leave hospital if, you're, if there's a medical reason to do so. So when women are self-discharging, and this, um, this infographic here comes from um, the RCM have published guidance last month on caring for vulnerable migrant women. And it's a really good um, guideline. And this is sort of a snapshot from their guideline. And it's sort of check their understanding, ask about possible barriers. Is there anything that you can do to, um, you know, can the children come in once they're out of quarantine? You know, thinking outside of the box, not just simply saying, oh, we're not having any children anymore. These women are really vulnerable. And thinking about 
what we, what we can do for those ladies and obviously using um, interpreting services to have those conversations. Now, hopefully you can um, see this. And I just wanted to sort of um, bring this in when we're thinking about women that are, are self-discharging or, or not accepting care. So for women from Afghanistan, if you have a look on this top bar here, so the second one in is the coverage of antenatal care. And this is from um, the World Health Organization. So 63% of women have one visit from a midwife. So when we're thinking here about how much antenatal care we have, and, and the reason for that is, you know, antenatal care is sort of preventative, it's, it's public health, you know, we're reducing adverse outcomes. The women are not used to seeing midwives, it's that they're, they're not very common. And when you have a look down at the bottom here, um, this is the density of doctors, nurses and midwives and pharmacists amongst the population. And Afghanistan have the lowest number, one of the lowest numbers in the whole world. So they're, they're, they, they haven't got this flourished staff of, of, of midwives or doctors. Then they're, they're not used to, um, to, to seeing them. So just be when we're going on, you need to come for this visit. You need to come for this scan. The women say, well, I only saw you last week or I only saw you two weeks ago. So, you know, this is just thinking about having that outward mindset of, why, why is this woman accepting or declining care and thinking outside the box? Um, so for the women um, that I saw, those 16 ladies, as I say, 50% didn't um, read or write, and the majority were not aware of their um, LMP or EDD. And this really, um, I wasn't expecting this. I was really expecting every woman to sort of know their LMP at least. Um, and, I, and I think probably the reason that lots weren't aware of their, their LMP was maybe because they didn't read or write. So thinking about um, calendars, it was very difficult to, to take a history. Um, they were very accepting of their healthcare outcomes. Um, so there were a couple of ladies that I saw that had had previous neonatal deaths and they weren't really um, sure what had happened in those pregnancies. They were very young. So the, the, the mean age was uh, 25 and a half and three out of those um, 16 uh, were multips. And then if you just have a look down at the bottom here, and I, I just find this staggering. So if you look at the, on the right-hand column, the maternal mortality ratio. So the maternal mortality is 638 per 100,000. So if you compare that to the UK, it's 8.8 .8 per 100,000. So, um, you know, it is common in their in their population that they will probably know people that have died during childbirth, which adds another dimension of fear, um, of uncertainty, of um, perhaps not trusting of services. Um, everything is not what it seems. So um, I'll, I'll just put this in. So this was um, taken from a, a, a news clipping um, a couple of days before the, the refugees arrived. Now, the first lady who I saw um, through the interpreter started telling me that she had a sore leg and it was, you know, painful. And I, the first thing I started thinking was, has this lady got a, um, a, a DVT, pregnant, long haul flight, traveling? And when I um, spoke to her in more detail, actually, she'd been stood at the airport for three days and she didn't want to lose her space, so had, had stood up for three days. And then I spoke to the next lady, and then the next lady, the first thing she started saying was, my legs are really hurting. And every woman I saw kept saying how painful her legs were. And I just want to sort of 
So, you know, these women really have been through um, some just unimaginable um, circumstances. And, and I, I hadn't appreciated sort of their journey immediately before they had, they had traveled. The Islamic calendar. So when I say about um, unconscious bias, um, and this only dawned to me halfway through the clinic, and it's really important for those of you that are, and this is one of the main messages for those of you that are watching, that are caring for women from Afghanistan. All of the women that I saw, um, as I say, they, they didn't really know their EDD, but when you ask them how many um, weeks pregnant you are, they go in months and they go by the Islamic calendar month. And I was very cross because one of my best friends, known her for 20 years, is Somalian. And I said to her, in 20 years, you never taught me about the uh, Islamic calendar. But the Islamic calendar is, at, depending on what year it is, it's actually two to three weeks shorter than the Gregorian calendar, which means that so if you're then directly um, sort of, if, if somebody says that you're seven months and then you're directly sort of converting it into weeks in the UK, actually the woman could be further ahead than, than you think she is. And this is really important because somebody could say be 42 or 43 weeks and you think that they're 40 weeks. And obviously, you know, we know that the, the, if you go sort of that far post dates, you're at risk of um, stillbirth. So I really wanted to sort of um, sort of home that message in. Um, thinking about cultural um, humility and, and cultural competence, I I would like to say that I'm um, sort of a, a culturally competent person. I've been sort of um, campaigning for migrant rights for sort of the, the last sort of five, six years, but I'm very acutely aware that I'm sort of a white, um, you know, educated woman. Um, so I just wanted to sort of talk about the difference between cultural competence and, and cultural humility and, and what that means in practice. Now, cultural competence, it's sort of... Um, it sort of implies a discrete endpoint that if you're competent, you know, you've ticked that box, you're culturally competent and that's sort of, um, that's the end. Whereas cultural humility is really thinking about um, its self-reflection. It's thinking about your background, where you fit into society. Um, it's, 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 it's going much deeper than um, just thinking about somebody's culture. It's thinking about, your background and how that fits in um, to that person's culture. And this was a really um, good quote that I saw. And it says, cultural humility is the practice of self-reflection on how one's own background experiences and expectations impact a situation or interaction. And the reason I say that is when I think about the, the you know, as I say, the way I was calculating the um, EDD and I didn't realize until halfway through that I had done it incorrectly. And I was assuming that, well, this is the right way to do it. And um, this is how we do it. And this is how everybody does it in the world, that this is how you calculate pregnancy. And that's not the case. And, and this is what uh, uh, the, most of the women from Afghanistan um, were doing. So uh, coming on to sort of thinking about cultural humility, it also requires um, historical awareness when you're thinking about caring for uh, vulnerable migrants. And this was um, Ernest Hendon. And those of you that might know this um, man, so he campaigned um, for the Tuskegee workers. And I don't know if you're aware of the, the Tuskegee experiment that was done in 1932. And this was where um, 
Tuskegee men, 600 of them were enrolled into um, sort of a free, a free health program. So they, the, the, the sort of the health service at the time said, we're going to give you free health care and you're going to have free meals. And excellent. They all signed up to it. Half of the men had syphilis. And, and obviously untreated syphilis um, is terrible, can cause blindness, um, liver disease, you know, really you can die, die from untreated syphilis. And what the researchers wanted to do was see what the course of untreated syphilis, how that panned out. So they didn't tell the men that they had syphilis. And this was just absolutely um, awful. So when we're thinking about not necessarily uh, women from Afghanistan, but from migrant women, sometimes they do have a distrust of healthcare services. And I think it's really important that we understand why some people are really distrusting of healthcare services. And this is, this is where this history, um, this is where this history comes from. Um, so moving back on to um, our Afghanistan refugees, um, I've heard a few people say, oh, uh, these are the Afghani ladies. And that's, um, that's really not correct. And, and I think terminology is so important. Um, and Afghani is the language that they speak. Um, and it, it, it's not the person, which is why I really liked the um, term from Tulip team. And then I just wanted you to think about um, what's your language behind your veil? So I just wanted you to sort of just sit back for a minute and just imagine that you were sort of picked up from your home and you were transported to Afghanistan where you didn't speak the language, heavily pregnant, you couldn't, you couldn't read. Just imagine how vulnerable um, you, would, you would feel. And, and, and in my career, um, not, not for women from Afghanistan, but in my career, I have seen people sort of um, shouting at, at, at women that don't speak English, thinking, well, you know, you can shout as much as you like. They still don't speak um, English. And, and that can come across as, um, you know, quite aggressive to the women. And, and most of our it's, it's body language, isn't it? So even if you don't speak the language, you know, you, you, you pick up on all of these cues. And maybe then you wouldn't say that um, you're suffering from domestic violence or you, you weren't sure if your baby was moving. Um, so it's really important that we connect with these women. Um, on another level, and I just wanted to say this, that we should all be having interpreters now. We've got um, at our hospital where we work, and it's excellent. I use it all the time. We've got an interpreter on wheels. So it's like a little iPad and you just, uh, and we've got loads of languages on there, about 80 languages, and you can just sort of click on it and it, it dials through and you see um, somebody come up on the screen and you can, you can have those conversations. So we really shouldn't be using um, family members now, children are inappropriate. Sometimes when you're having really difficult conversations um, about maybe, you know, are you having vaginal bleeding? When did you last have intercourse? It's not appropriate to be using children for those conversations. And also there is sort of a higher prevalence of domestic violence in this population. And if you're using partners, then how are you having those, how are you having those conversations? Um, so just this is like a whistle stop talk because I could honestly be talking about this um, all night. So what would I do um, differently next time for um, the, the, the care of these ladies? Um, so I would definitely attend with um, perinatal mental health. So obviously when we sort of arranged this sort of emergency clinic for the next day, um, it was sort of all a bit... Um, frazzled and we did it overnight I sort of spent the most of the night up sort of trying to um, arrange this antenatal clinic the next day 
Um, but we definitely should have gone with um, perinatal mental health. And I think lots of these women were suffering from post-traumatic stress. They were really frightened. And obviously the, the bomb had gone off during the clinic and definitely having those psychological um, support systems in place. One of the ladies that I spoke with, she was very young, she was 20 years old. And she was, uh, she'd come to the country with her husband because he was an interpreter and the rest of her family, her brothers, her sister, her mum and dad were all at home. And she was just, she was absolutely just, you could just see that she was so frightened. Um, and these women do really need that extra perinatal mental health support. We need to be caring for them and asking them all of those questions, obviously with interpreters. And then a debrief for myself, I was so busy um in the sort of the, the weeks after caring for these ladies um we did all the caseload for them whilst they were in the quarantine hotel so that they were in the hotel for about um about 14 days so quarantine is for 10 days but we were sort of waiting for um the home office to to relocate them so they, they were with us for about two weeks and we were providing all of the antenatal care so I was sort of too busy doing all of that um and didn't debrief myself and and I think it's really important that, and, and Sue mentioned it at the beginning, that, um, you know, we have got a really tough job at the moment. And I think we, we often don't, we often don't stop. And, you know, we reflect by ourselves when we're driving home or on the train. Um, but having that sort of time out to speak with your PMAs, having that restorative practice, um, that's definitely what I would do next time. And, um, yeah couple of resources for you all so I mentioned it already about the and I think Sue's going to put them up um, the RCM guideline on caring for um, vulnerable migrant women and then uh, maternity actions um, improving access um, to maternity care for women affected by um, charging and what I would say is um, all of the women who um, have fled Afghanistan the Afghanistan refugees obviously they're seeking asylum so they are entitled to um, free NHS care Thank you. And sorry, it's a whistle stop tour. So if you've got any questions, I'm always happy outside um, to drop me an email um, and, and we can touch base. That's great. Thank you so much, Sophie. That was fantastic. I love the I love the tulip meaning. I think that was lovely. And it, I know there was a, an awful lot going on and thank you for sharing it so beautifully and um, and just for, for those of you who have questions I know probably some of you are putting in questions now and we'll try and get them answered at the end of the, of, of the program and also maybe on on the live stream when we get through to it but I don't want to take any of Michelle's time because we're now moving on to um, baby loss awareness um, and I'm really so pleased. Um, well, it, it's kind of it's a bittersweet thing because, of course, baby loss awareness week is about the less happy bit of our role. I mean, it's 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 something that's very important, but we're used to having a sort of joyful part of women and families life. And this is a harder part of this. Um, so we're going to be looking at the impact on women and their families. And I'm delighted that we're being joined by Michelle Lynch. She's been a lead midwife for bereavement care at the North Mid Middlesex Hospital NHS Trust since June 2015. She's a trained bereavement counsellor and professional midwifery advocate, which Sophie was talking about a little bit earlier. PMA, PMA, we're getting used to that now. 
And in her role, she introduced the National Bereavement Care Pathway to the Trust uh, during its national pilot phase and introduced a rainbow clinic and recurrent miscarriage counselling clinic based on parental feedback on the service. And she's won several awards, including most recently the Mariposa Trust Bereavement Midwife of the Year 2020 and the RCM Award in 2018. And she's also obviously, and some of you will have seen at a previous um, maternity, maternity and midwifery festival and, and several local conferences. And she's also a very keen runner, she, which she may or may not share with you. Um, so welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for coming to be with us. The screen is now yours. Thank you. So again, just give me a few seconds just while I share my screen and my presentation. We will. No problem. All right. So um, thank you very much, Sue, for inviting me. Um, obviously, as you said, it is Baby Loss Awareness Week. So that started on Saturday and it runs until Friday. And what that's all about, obviously, is raising the awareness about pregnancy loss and baby loss uh, more generally, because unfortunately, um, despite it being very, very common and something that as a midwife, you'd be incredibly lucky not to see in your career. Um, you know, it still is a very taboo subject and it's something that, you know, midwives can struggle with and that families obviously do struggle with when, when it does happen to them. So I'm going to talk a little bit about pregnancy loss, like the statistics behind it, but I'm mostly going to concentrate on, you know, how it affects women and why it is quite a complex issue for us to deal with as midwives. So these are some of the statistics. They may or may not surprise um, some of you. So as it says there, pregnancy loss is very, very common surprisingly so. So these are statistics from the UK. So we're not talking global statistics. They would be much, much higher. Uh, we're talking just from the UK itself. And these are 2019. So it's just to be aware, obviously, statistics run um, a little bit behind. So we tend to be one to two years behind when we can get them out of the Office of National Statistics and Embrace. So you're seeing some of like the headline um, figures there. Um, so if you look at miscarriage, so you will see various quotations regarding how common the miscarriage is. So it's around 20 percent, 20 to 25 percent of women experience it. Um, but if we actually took all of the women who, who knew they were pregnant, if every single one of them reported, the figure is probably a bit, little bit lower. So more like one in eight, but about a quarter of women in their lifetime, in their childbearing lifetime, they will experience miscarriage. And it's estimated that actually every single year in the UK, about 250,000 women will experience it. So you're talking absolutely huge numbers of women. And the unfortunate thing for this group of women is that because it tends to happen in the first trimester where a lot of them haven't even told anyone they're pregnant, um, th there isn't many people around them, not so much of a support network, they might not have even told anybody. So a lot of these miscarriages that happen early on, they happen because we think because of chromosomal abnormalities, we think about half of miscarriages have an underlying cause. But probably the most tragic thing that clinics like the Thomas clinics are trying to change and to research in is that, you know, a lot of women, they never get answers. It's never explained until they've had two, three, four, five. Some women have had eight miscarriages before anyone really looks into it and they just keep going through it over and over again. And about one in 100 women will have recurrent miscarriage. So that's uh, three or more in a row. About 60% of those women, even without investigations, they will go on to have a successful pregnancy, but you're still talking about a big number of women who might never know a cause and they might never have a successful pregnancy. And the support around miscarriages isn't standardised and it's not always great. So coming on to more to stillbirths, so this is what you might see more of as a midwife, so your late miscarriages, your stillbirths. Yes, it has reduced. So things like the Saving Babies Lives Care Bundle, they have actually been quite successful 
everyone obviously that you have to put your figures in your CNST or that it, it always seems like a bit of a pain um, but the interventions so around smoking cessation reduced fetal movements fetal growth um, surveillance they have actually had quite a lot of success so we're talking about when I came into movement midwifery in 2015 you're talking about 15 babies a day stillborn in the UK now it's more like eight so it has half we have met the first target so much so that they've brought that target forward to 2025 to try and get to um, the, the complete harming of stillbirth and neonatal death. So yes, we know some women are, are more at risk of stillbirth. You know, the background risk is probably one to two percent. And a lot of the families actually they will say midwives probably don't talk enough about how common it is. They probably don't mention miscarriage. They don't mention stillbirth too much. And they kind of wish they'd known. Obviously, it's probably not something they want to think about too much, but if someone has had a stillbirth before, that their risk goes up four times. So it is something that we will discuss in a subsequent pregnancy for them. So like miscarriage, actually about half of stillbirths are never explained. So we can do all the tests in the world, but some of those women, again, they will never have answers. And that can be a really difficult place to be. We don't have the answer at the time, and some of those women may never find out why that baby died. And that has obviously knock-on implications, which I'm going to come to now. So pregnancy loss it is complex. It is bereavement. Um, you know, we see pregnancy loss almost like it's a, it's a different thing, but it is bereavement, hence the term bereavement midwife. Um, but while we might think of somebody being bereaved, they lose their grandma, you know, the, the old person, they die peacefully in their bed. Like generally is the, the impact, uh, the image that people have of bereavement and, and grief. This is more complex than that. So you're not just talking about the fact that they have lost somebody in their family. There's, there's other things like multi-layered on top of that. The, the kind of probably one of the significant ones being that you don't just lose the baby. You lose, and it says it in the top, the loss of your dreams for the future. So that image of when you've got that positive pregnancy test of like, now I'm going to be a mom. Now we're going to be a family of four. We're going to be a family of five. Um, I'm going to have a grandchild if you're the grandparent. It's like, you know, you lose all of that. And it was imagined. It was never real, but they lose all of that. And it's quite a big kind of image shift from I'm preparing to be a parent to I, I, am I even a parent at all? Particularly with early pregnancy losses, obviously you've got no visual images. You've got, you've got none of those shared things often that, um, that people can draw on to draw comfort and to talk about with others. So the way that they can kind of kind of cope with bereavement is to talk about the person that they've lost. If you don't have any of that, it's like it's almost like, well, it's not real. And you will unfortunately get quite clumsy things said to people. So, you know, at least you never knew them. You know, they weren't alive. You know, to, to these people, it's like that doesn't make any difference at all. They've lost a baby. And other complexities lying on, on top of that. So, you know, am I a parent anymore? It can, it can be such a kind of shock to people. It can really shock their system. You know, they're feeling frightened. They might have quite a strong belief in God. And suddenly it's like, why has God done this to me? My life doesn't have meaning. I'm frightened because this, this is what I thought life was about. And, and, and it's just, this has happened to me and I'm not sure why it's happened. And if you don't get answers, it's even more kind of complicated for those women. And obviously a big part of it, self-image. You get a lot of women having horrendous guilt. So even if they get told, this is not your fault, this is what happened, it, it was just freak accident whatever you want to call it like chance they see it you know their self-image I failed something has gone wrong this is something that I've done and they kind of lose their trust in their self and like what they are as a woman and kind of see in some cultures it's like it's very much a you have you have to have a baby to be you know a woman to be a good wife and you know they can have that multi-layered on top of it you know these kind of cultural expectations if you don't have a baby you're failing in some way and this is the slide that I'm glad I checked because it does come up in months. So it is, it's very multifactorial. So other things kind of influence as well. 
So we think around some of the circumstances around the death. You know, it's not just, you know, when people lose people in, in, in a sudden traumatic way, it can be it can be very hard for them. And unfortunately, in some of those cases, something might have happened within the care that that woman has been provided um, during the pregnancy or around the time of labor or shortly afterwards that might have had an impact. And obviously, we are very open and honest now. We do full reviews into these cases and we have to be honest with women if, if something has go wrong. Uh, has gone wrong and sometimes you know that can be really shattering to women because they're very grateful to the trust and all of a sudden it's like something that we did could have contributed to this so that can really influence the way that the women grieve the support available we know we know from lots and lots and lots of research evidence that if people have good social support networks you know if they have church if they have good family if they've got good friends around them who they can talk to then they'd cope a lot better with traumatic events and, and grief than others might and this is where obviously we as medical professionals can kind of step in. It's about identifying, you know, who does that person have around them? Who is their network? Because it's not just about, you know, the professional side of it. For some people, they cope much better on like a peer level. So maybe somebody who's been in their shoes has been through it themselves, a close friend. They don't always want that kind of counseling, that professional level of support. Previous experiences. So unfortunately, as I said, some women have recurrent miscarriage. They have recurrent loss. We can't always explain it. And for some of those women... They might have had a prior bad experience it might have been managed very badly and then they have another loss it might be managed well it might not and that can impact on how they, they cope this time obviously the woman herself so just because you are bereaved just because something happens to you the way that you cope with things tends to be how you cope with things it doesn't suddenly radically change because this event has happened to you so the way that you normally cope with things your personality your, your cultural background your your family background and your kind of inner resources has a big impact on how you cope your relationship to the baby so you will get women you know it can be very um traumatic you can get women you think it's a miscarriage it's eight weeks it happens to lots of people that's our medical perspective but you know you're looking at kind of like as i said i've, I've been a pregnant woman <laughs> you know like as soon as you see that um line it's like your your brain goes off your child has grown up and gone to school and you've got a relationship with that baby but for some women, actually, they take it very factually. It's going back, you know, how Sophie was talking. It's like in some cultures, this happens a lot. They see it a lot. And it's not that they shook it off, but you do, I would say, particularly some of our um, Western Africans, some of our Islamic families, they do have a kind of very different perspective to how me as a white middle class woman might see it. And they'll say, you know, it's God's will. And, um, you know, such is life. And they don't really kind of have that same what you might expect. The significance of this loss if women women have had multiple loss if they have had ivf and this is their last throw of the dice if you like you saying it's just a miscarriage it happens to everyone every day it's like this might be their only chance and they've lost it and it is a lasting impact so i would say kind of one of the biggest problems i, I kind of might experience as a as a midwife and as a bereavement midwife and you know as somebody who's passionate about bereavement as, as weird as that sounds is that people can sometimes see it as a very like it's in this moment thing and it passes and the woman comes back pregnant and all is well this is something that obviously is going to have a lasting impact on the majority of people and their family and it can be absolutely hugely traumatic um, for women who go through it and that could be along the spectrum so we're talking miscarriage right through stillbirth neonatal death and for some women you know the experience that they have around miscarriage for example they can be given certain information that maybe suggests that it might be like a heavy period it's not going to be too bad and then the actual experience of it is nothing like that. And you can end up with women who have post-traumatic stress and really kind of long-lasting mental health impacts. 
So if you read all the literature around kind of um, loss and the embrace reports, there's a lot in the embrace reports in maternal death reports and things about mental health. And they'll say, obviously, one of the biggest influences on the women, um, you know, that have mental health problems and complexes is, is that if they lose the baby and that could be lost by baby loss, it can be lost by um, removal of the child. There are a really significant risk of mental health problems and they need good support. And unfortunately, what you tend to see with, with um, this group of women is that perinatal mental health services and things will say once the baby is not in the picture, it's not for them anymore. And you're scratching around trying to find some support that, you know, you, you get with this really vulnerable group. So you will see a lot of literature referring to this ripple effect. So, yeah, it's like dropping the pebble. It's like, you know, the baby dies. It affects the parents. It affects the grandparents. It affects their wider social circles. You get the ripples out, and it touches everybody. And I think you have to be very, very careful about the support that you give. And like, you tend to go, "Oh, poor mother," and everyone just looks at the mum. And kind of, if I want to give like an anecdotal evidence, it's like when a consultant walked into the bereavement room with me, and the bereaved family and the dad was sitting quietly next to the mum, and everyone just spoke to her. And all of a sudden, he just went, "Oh, hello," and stood up and held his hand out to the consultant, and he was completely taken aback that this person was kind of saying, I'm the dad and I'm here. Like, please acknowledge the fact that I'm here. And obviously things around partner support, you know, it's very important to make sure that you're not just focusing just on one person, it's the whole family. I talked about self-image already. So a lot of women, they are left with a lot of guilt, a lot of anxiety, a lot of this was my fault. Um, and you get women saying, and, and it's, you know, it, it's really kind of tragic. And, you know, this sits in my counseling clinic and they will say things like, I see myself as a monster. I see myself as useful. I see myself as failing everybody. I failed everybody in my family. I've let them all down. So it can be hugely, uh, hugely impacting on that woman's um, self-image. And obviously that, that then can impact on things like her physical health, her relationships and her mental health. So with regards to physical health, you tend to get things like, you know, you might have women experiencing symptoms like psychosomatic symptoms. Yes, it does link with mental health, but women will talk about, and you hear chariots called aching arms, like the aching heart, the heavy arms, the heavy heart. Never, ever obviously say to bereaved women, we think this is because you lost the baby if they're having chest pain, because it might be something else. But you can have women having really extreme physical symptoms that are as a, as a result of what's happened to them. And women can kind of slip into kind of really not so good health behaviors, shall we call them. So, you know, if they've been substance misusers, they might slip back into that. They might slip back into that, like heavy alcohol use, lots of things, like heavy smoking that wouldn't be, you know, good if they're going to get pregnant again, it wouldn't be good for them anyway, but they can easily slip into that behavior kind of in the long term. Yes, their relationships, you see people's relationships break up. You see partners that often share this experience that just can't talk to each other. Uh, they're not supported. The partner kind of um, reacts in a different way. To his wife they can't understand each other you know they reject counseling and things and you can see people lose long-term relationships and relationships with long-standing friends because the taboo around baby loss is such like i don't know what to say so i'll say nothing and kind of the friendship just gradually drifts and drifts because nobody ever gets back in touch and, and, and the family can be so like hurt by that it's like this really close friend couldn't even reach out to me and that's really hard and obviously the mental health, the mental health is the big one. I have got some clips on here, which come from Miscarriage Association, which is emphasizing with the partner because we don't want to forget the partner in this. So these are some of the things, you know, that how the dad has felt, but both parents feeling the same. So we've got basically three decades worth of evidence into how pregnancy loss affects mental health. But yeah, we still have this unfortunate kind of circumstances where we rely very heavy, heavily on charities and things to provide that support for us or people like myself going and getting counseling training. 
because the perinatal mental health support sometimes is getting a bit better, but it's sometimes just not there for this group of women. And you've got kind of three elements within that. So obviously this transition to parenthood and the attachment with the baby, perinatal mental health disorders like post-traumatic stress and, and severe depression and this complex grieving. So people go through a process of bereavement, but sometimes that is more complicated and they get stuck at a certain point. And those are the people that probably need a bit more support. So most women, they get their most acute symptoms, like what you might call depression and anxiety in their first month. Around a third of women in that time, they have like symptoms that you would say is post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and a quarter have depression and anxiety. Tends to drop a little bit. So if you look in the long term, you're talking more one in six women have um, long-term post-traumatic stress. And obviously the impacts that that can have on their wider life in the next pregnancy. And it, includes, uh, it will include those that have early pregnancy loss and ectopic. So it's not like stillbirths. It's, it's the whole spectrum. 11% with moderate to severe depression and a third of women who actually come to specialist miscarriage clinics. This is a recurrent miscarriage clinic. They have symptoms like that is basically identical to people who are in um, under psychiatrists. So they have very severe symptoms, but they don't always get a lot of support. And people assume, you know, if they have a live birth afterwards, it's all going to be fine. But sometimes actually that's when it hits them. They rush out mm. to get pregnant. Maybe they think it's all going to be good. And then they get really se severe postnatal depression or their symptoms worsen. Um, so, yeah, like the most commonly reported symptoms, I'd say you've got, um, you know, re-experiencing those feelings around the pregnancy loss and what it felt like to go through that labour. So you will see in next pregnancies, for example, people who just say, I want a cesarean section. I can't go through normal childbirth because it will put me back how it was giving birth to that baby. And they almost kind of like constantly see it and they can get very, very distressed. So intrusive or unwanted thoughts, so like post-traumatic stress um, kind of things, flashbacks. And early losses can be really kind of especially complex because sometimes the women have told nobody and they feel that they can't tell anybody about any. It almost doesn't matter. And of course you get those, it goes back to relationships a little bit. You get the kind of questions and it goes back to them feeling like, am I a parent? Am I not a parent? Like, what am I now? Um, and kind of society's, you know, taboo around it. And it's like, people will make comments and it's things like, how many children do you have? And it's like, how do I answer that question? Do I say I have three live children and one dead one? Will that be really awkward? And you do get women and they kind of laugh, but you can see like how that would be. You know, when will you try again? Don't you think they need a sibling? When will you try and have a baby? And you know, some of these women are women that's had pregnancy loss and like that can put them like in a really, that, that can put their self-image really down. And you're thinking about the staff as well, just before I kind of finish on what I do as a midwife in my trust, never kind of underestimate as a midwife, like how difficult it is to look after this group of women, because I do it all the time. And sometimes people kind of making it is a throwaway comment. It's like you do it all the time. So it's almost like it's okay. And you can, you can just deal with it. And it's just like, it doesn't affect you. you it just kind of floats. You just float over the top and you just kind of almost like ignore it. Um, you always have the cases that touch you more. And of course it's not easy, but you know, you do have to have like the kind of coping methods and that's where my running comes in. So I'll mention it because you mentioned it. Um, I run, so that's how I deal with it. We don't always ask bereavement midwives necessarily get psychological support, um, but yet um, we find out other ways of coping and that's my way because it gives me time to like zone out and think. Obviously we have things in our own lives. You know, some of us have had pregnancy loss ourselves. Sometimes we come in on the shift and they allocate you to that room and it's like, today is not a good day. And again, anecdotally, I came in on a shift and I'd lost a friend suddenly and there were six bereaved families on the labor ward. And you're like, no, today is not the day for me. But obviously it was my job, so you have to go on. So as a member of staff, 
as much as we talk about the support for the women, you must seek support for yourself if you find it difficult. It's part of what a bereavement midwife will do. Um, but you will have like occupational health support. You'll have your PMAs. And um, obviously, charities like SANS, they are also there to support staff as well. So never forget, obviously, don't think you just have to tough it out because this will affect you. You will cry with these women. It's not a sign of weakness. It's probably a good thing. They see, you know, it's like that affected that midwife. It's not just every day to her. It's just like it isn't to me. And then just very quickly, this is this is my role. So it's not by any means the same everywhere because there isn't really a national guideline on what a bereavement midwife does. You know, it tends to be like, and I'll never forget someone saying this to me, you're, you're the death midwife. And I was like, I'm not the death midwife. <laughs> like, that's a really inappropriate thing to say. Um, but, you know, you deal with the dead babies is the other one. OK, so, yes, you are there in a capacity. You're kind of like the expert. I'm not saying you have training because you don't. There isn't training for it. You have a special interest. And what my expert advice is, is what I've gone away and I found out. So you give expert advice and support in practicalities following death. So, you know, what are the ins and outs? What do you have to do to register a baby? What do you have to do to arrange a funeral? What does being referred to the coroner mean? So you talk to families about this. You talk to staff about what they need to do to make sure those things happen. But that is like the tiniest part of your role ever. The most part of it is support. It's pointing families to support. It's offering that support. I have counselling training. Not all of them will but you're trying to support these families or pass them on to someone who can support and it's not always easy. So the main thing these families need is guidance on grief and bereavement and like what is normal because I'm like, I feel so jealous. I feel so angry. Like this is completely like, this is not me and this is not what I should be thinking. I shouldn't look at that woman and go, why has she got a baby and I don't? It's just making sure that people understand that process and that it's normal because we're talking about young people who nowadays have probably never lost anybody in their life. And this mm. is the first time that they're going through all these things. We're looking at getting results. Results take a long time. You're talking three, four months. Getting results to try and explain what's happened and plan for the future if they choose to have another pregnancy or just to close that episode off and like just give them that closure, just understand what was happened to them. And something I do subsequent pregnancy as a midwife, as a, gen as a general midwife in an antenatal clinic, you will come across these women. I've talked about how kind of really heavily psychologically damaged some of these women are um, and never kind of assume this is a new pregnancy, like it'll all be all right this time, dear, because those women will have an unbelievable level of anxiety. And something, obviously, the reason my appointments in Rainbow Clinic are quite long is because um, you will spend a lot of time and women will get very, very fixated on. I'm so worked up about this scan because last time this is where I found out what happened. I'm so worked up about being 36 weeks because that's when I lost the baby. And it can kind of really build up and it can just destroy that pregnancy for them and ruin their mental health. It's very important. They have really good. If you don't have a specialist clinic, that they have some mental health support that they, you understand and you give them that little bit of time. It really is important. And that in a nutshell is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> right? I know I've kind of been over a little bit. Um, hopefully that's OK. No, I think I think it's been fantastic, Michelle. I think what is is really interesting actually is that you've both talked so beautifully about how the complexity of your roles and what you've done and and the kind of what's come over is it's not just the women and babies and families you're looking after but the midwives themselves and 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 in a very kind of reflective and honest way that the, the effect it can have because we're all people too as well, if we're providing care, we have to look after ourselves and we have to look after our colleagues. So I think that was really um, beautifully shared 
and thank you for 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 being so honest. I mean, I was quite. So it, it always hits me that the number the numbers of babies lost, the numbers of women having miscarriages, and and it it's 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 always shocking because you know people who've experienced it, but you've also you know you can imagine the terrible things that are said because we as humans again going back to being humans want to make things better so you can imagine someone saying oh you'll have a a nice normal baby next time which is you know oh you can just hear it dreadfully from from there and I mean I was just thinking Michelle how as a bereavement midwife how do you address the issues of guilt for the mothers and and the partners come to that what what do you say to kind of start unpacking that one I mean obviously the thing probably not to say um right at the point it happens and when it's diagnosed is this is not your fault because Mm. unfortunately that there are certain circumstances you don't want to put more guilt on somebody but there are certain circumstances where certain things or health behaviors that women might have chosen or certain paths you know might have contributed so if you say to someone this was not your fault and then you get results that say you've had an abruption and it was likely because maybe you used cocaine, for example, you know, that can have like real big repercussions on that woman. But I think sometimes it is just a case of like putting them in, you know, with me, I do the counseling, but putting them into something that's going to help like work through those things with them. Mm. You will probably never eliminate it completely. Um, the, the women that are probably the biggest problem group, if you like, are the ones that where they get results that say we don't know. Because then it automatically go back, it was me. And it was because I I went out and I had dinner with my friends or, you know, I went and I went to the gym or you just, you know, perfectly normal things. But because you don't have an explanation, it comes like back to them. So it is just trying to help them kind of understand why they feel that way, because sometimes you can't ever get rid of it. Yeah, that's grand. Thank you. Well, and that's 50% of stillbirths never been explained. And that's a lot of women and families who don't know why. And it's that wide bit. That's really. Now we've got something. We've got a couple of only a couple of questions we've got time for now. But we've got a comment from Claire Dale. Hi, Claire, who says, really enjoyed listening to you both. Open my eyes to the difficulties of difficulties of dealing with these cases. But you also showed how rewarding it can be. So well done from Claire. Thank you, Claire. It's a lovely comment to make. And Teresa Shalovsky. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Teresa, thank you, Sophie and Michelle. You're both doing amazing work. So interesting to listening to you both. I wish you, we had longer. I do too. Could listen to you for ages. And um, I just had a query from Rosie Halter or Hala. I missed the presentation from Sophie. I wonder if there are any health facilities in all quarantine hotels. Um, so, so good question. So, um, the, the quarantine hotels are sort of closing now is my understanding, but when I was, um, involved, they were having, um, sort of some sort of basic healthcare. So they were usually having sort of outsourced paramedics that were doing, um, some health within the, 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 the hotels. Um, but it's a good question. There were no sort of midwives in there. Um, and I think that's why being in a quarantine hotel, it was a very sort of um, a very unique situation in that it was a um, a sort of barrier that we've not come across before. You know, we've not had this situation where women sort of enter into quarantine hotels and then there mm. is a barrier because you can't just 
up and leave and go and see a midwife if you want to. So uh, I hope that answers your question. I think it does. Well, also, those women might, might not have realised they need to see a midwife. Of exactly. Course, which yeah. you illustrated brilliantly. And I, w- I would honestly love to listen to you both for another hour because you're both fantastic midwives and doing fantastic things. And you've, you've really opened my eyes. The, the last menstrual period business and the, and the pregnancy calculation from you, uh, Sophie, and from Michelle, I think the complexity of really unpicking what's happening within the family and not taking anything for granted with the woman is fantastic. Mm. So thank you so much for coming and sharing your expertise. You will come again whether you like it or not. So thank you very much. I need to close the the session at at this point. Some of us will check out social media. So if you do have questions, we'll try and answer them as we go. Next week, same time next week, seven to eight, we're returning slightly different perspective on continuity of care. We've got Tracy Cooper and Laura Rumsey, Sarah Petty and Joe Crawford joining us. So that will be really good. Don't forget to book for Student Experience Festival on the 10th of November, which is online totally. We've had a massive uptake from universities and the students are really so keen to all engage on Zoom. So it's going to be a Zoom spectacular, I think, for that. Um, The Midwifery Education Conference on the 10th of November is still some places on that. And the Scottish Maternity and Midwifery Festival on the 23rd of November is also booking now for live places and online as well. We're getting used to being hybrids these days. So in the meantime, I'll say another big thank you to Sophie and Michelle and thank you to everyone for joining us. See you this time next week, 7 till 8, and, and have a good week. Stay safe, stay well. Thank you for joining us for the Maternity and Midwifery Hour. This podcast has been made possible by the team at Maternity and Midwifery Forum and our CPD partners, Matflix. You can sign up at matflix.co.uk. This episode was edited and produced by Catherine Stewart of the Narrowcast Media Group.